Welcome to the Trial Talks Podcast, a thought-provoking series surrounding clinical trial research. We'll be exploring current and future trends of the ever-changing clinical trial landscape as we discuss a variety of topics including virtual trials, patient centricity, novel and unique research, pandemic impact, and more. Join us and our expert guests on a journey through the evolution of clinical trials. Welcome to Trial Talks Season 2. This season is all about the heart of your trial, your patients. We'll be speaking with patient advocates, diversity experts, and hearing directly from some patients themselves, all in an effort to gain insight into how to improve the patient experience within clinical studies. I'm your host, Nicole Latimer, the Chief Executive Officer of Medrio, and today I'm joined by Trishna Baradia, an advisor on patient engagement, chronic illness, disability, and diversity in healthcare. Welcome, Trishna. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Trishna, let's start out with you telling us a little bit about your background. It's so interesting. Please share it with our audience. Thanks. So, um, yeah, I've been in this space for over a decade now. And like many people who get into this, it sort of it came as a result of a diagnosis. Uh, I live with several long-term physical and mental health conditions, but it was being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2008 at the age of 28 that really led me into the advocacy route. So essentially, my diagnosis wasn't a good experience. I was given this life-changing news, and then I wasn't offered any guidance or support or signposting in order to be able to start navigating this new kind of journey that I was on. And I didn't want others to go through the same thing. So initially, I started volunteering with various MS charities and patient organisations. But then I noticed that lots of the issues that were pertinent to the MS community were also affecting other patient communities as well. And this was really when I started to work across disease areas and with multiple stakeholders. And so that included, it includes pharma, CROs, industry bodies, clinicians, um, and I also work nationally and internationally as well. And it's really about getting the patient voice heard louder, stronger, and more effectively. So if throughout that entire healthcare system and the medicines development life cycle. Um, through this, and you know, as I've gone through the journey and my experience, I've developed a particular expertise and also interest in good patient engagement practices, diversity in healthcare, um, and also better communication of medical and scientific information to patients and caregivers. You know, I do a lot of different things, as you as you mentioned, um, including consultancy, writing, media outreach. I do a lot of co-creation of products, services, and information as well. So my philosophy is really, you know, that we are all likely to be patients and or caregivers at some point in our lives. So it's in everyone's interest to work towards a more patient-focused future. And that's really what I'm working towards and what, you know, what I'd like to achieve through my work. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. 
and such a fantastic mission for you to be taking on and sharing your experience and then turning it into the advocacy and the focus on patient-centric healthcare. We see across the industry such disturbing rates of lack of engagement by patients, whether it's in healthcare systems, whether it's around uh, prescription medications, or the difficulty people have recruiting and retaining participants in clinical trials. In your mind, you know, if we were in a perfect world, how would you advise sponsors or CROs to create a more patient-centric trial? What steps should they be taking? So that's a really great question. I think firstly, um, we need to start taking a step back and start right from the very beginning, which is getting patients involved in the setting of research priorities. So what is it that this clinical trial is actually going to be looking at? Is it patient focused? Is it what patients actually want? Is it meeting an unmet need? Um, And then it's about involving patients along every part of the clinical trial process. So whether that's deciding if a trial should be site-based or hybrid or decentralized, whether it's designing protocols, whether it's reviewing patient information and informed consent documentation, you know, assessing the suitability of tools and services that are going to be used during the trial, you know, for example, for monitoring purposes or for support, you know, then it goes all the way through to helping to disseminate the trial results in a way that is going to reach the right people in the right format at the right time. I don't actually think this needs to be a perfect world scenario. It's not, you know, I often say it's not rocket science, but it's about putting the processes in place to make patient involvement and patient partnership in clinical trials everyday business. It shouldn't be that this is the exception and that we should be holding, um, you know, holding up examples as case studies where pockets of patient centricity is happening. This should be an embedded part of the way that clinical trials are being designed and implemented and undertaken. Here at Medrio, we could not agree more wholeheartedly with you that patient-centric design should be embedded into the overall process. But let's think a little bit about some of the traditional pushback themes that we hear from the industry. One of those themes is the idea that it's already so hard to recruit participants in the trial. How are we possibly going to recruit and involve enough patients to go through the entire design process? Do you have some suggestions on how that recruitment, how that involvement of patients early on in the entire process could be generated? Sure. So I think the main thing to remember is that actually there's lots of patients out there who do want to get involved. And there are many people, you know, advocating. And particularly with COVID-19, it's made people more aware of healthcare issues and potentially created a whole new set of possible patient advocates. So even people who've been living with long-term conditions and who may not have been involved in advocacy or involved, you know, in, for example, partnering with industry before, they're becoming more activated. And 
we need to remember that at the end of the day, it's about having a win-win for, for everyone. Um, so I think industry will find that patients are willing to get involved. It may not be that somebody is able to give the commitment right from setting of research priorities all the way through to the very, the very end of a trial and dissemination of results. However, getting different voices heard throughout that process so that it's not too burdensome, I don't think is as difficult as sometimes industry can make it. Um, it's about um, it's about creating those long-term relationships. It's about finding the right patients and patient advocates and patient organizations to get involved according to you know, the skills, the expertise, the therapeutic area, et cetera. Um, I often say that just make that first move. Go and find out who are the patient advocates. Social media is great in that way because many patient advocates and patient organizations are very active now on social media. So it's not necessarily very difficult to find them if you know, for example, the right hashtags to follow, um, what's trending in those particular communities. So, you know, finding them and their willingness isn't actually as hard as, like I said, as sometimes I think industry thinks it is. It's about making that first step, in my, in my opinion. And is it also about making that first step a small step? I think what I heard was don't ask for the big day-long, month-long, year-long commitment, but find a small project, find five minutes or 20 minutes for them to participate. Does that help to increase and, and activate them? I think it can do. I think what we need to remember is that no two patients are going to be the same. So what will work for one patient may not work for another. So it might be that one patient needs to have more bite-sized involvement. Somebody else might be able to give the year-long commitments. So I'm, for example, I'm involved in many long-term relationships with various different companies, um, either on advisory boards or um, steering groups or, or, or things like that. Um, and that's because I, I'm able to do that. Somebody else might not be able to. Um, so I think it's about having those options available and always ask. Don't be afraid to ask a patient what works for them for that particular involvement. And that goes for not just time commitment. It goes for logistics. It goes for training. It goes for what tools they may need in order to make, the, make this engagement work. If you have an open and transparent two-way dialogue, it just makes the whole collaboration much easier and much more effective and valuable in my experience. I completely agree. I think one of the one of the things that we are seeing lots of interest around, one, one of the opportunities for that open two-way dialogue right now are those tools and surveys and collection instruments that we are seeing be deployed in some of the clinical studies. Uh, I, the last year, uh, the use of uh, decentralized trial technology or hybrid trial technology has really increased. The collection of electronic patient reported outcomes tools has really increased. 
and we're seeing so much interest there. What would you advise CROs or sponsors to be thinking about as they distribute those patient surveys, those patient-reported outcomes tools, in other words, the patient collection technology that they are using? Sure. So I think, uh, firstly, it comes back to you need to have patients involved and or need to make sure that solutions providers have had patients involved in the design of these solutions. You know, what's the point of designing a fabulous trial in partnership with patients if you then say using an e-diary that isn't patient friendly because there were no patients involved in, in the design? You know, so in terms of on the, the side of the sponsors and the CROs, if you're choosing a vendor, ask them how their products and services were developed. You know, ask patients what it is that they want out of the solutions so that you have an idea when, when vendors are pitching to you. And then when you're involving patients, you need to look at two things. So firstly, how deep should that involvement be going? And secondly, what type of patients should be involved at what point? So what I mean by this is, well, let's say you want to put out a survey to get patients' input into what they think about using digital tools as part of a clinical trial, because you're considering what areas of a trial should be digitalized. Well, that's patient-focused because you're going out and you're asking patients then the types of patients you should be targeting, they're the ones who fit the demographic for that particular trial. So again, that's patient-focused because you're being targeted about who you're approaching. But what about the survey itself? Is that patient-friendly? You know, if it's not understandable, if it's not in the right format or it's not disseminated via the right channels, then are you biasing the responses because you're only getting a certain type of patient responding? You know, this is where um, you need to get what I call the pro-patient involved or a patient engagement expert. These are people who know the communities, know what works and resonates, and also what will elicit good response rates for this particular survey from the, tar- the, from the, the, sort of the target audience. Um, now, I mentioned about different types of patients, and by this I mean that so in my experience, there are now sort of three broad groups of patients, and they have varying characteristics that will determine how, why, and also, um, and also in what you engage them in. So you've got patients by experience who are the vast majority of people, and they have lived in experience of their own disease, but little experience or knowledge sort of beyond that. And then you have expert patients who also have experience and knowledge of other patients and their own patient community. Um, They're often health literate and they're usually highly informed as well. And then I've just mentioned this group, you have pro-patients who, in addition to everything that goes with the other two groups, Pro-patients are also disease agnostic and they have knowledge and experience of lots of different patient communities and the overarching issues that face them. And then we also have patient influencers and also what we call patientpreneurs. 
who can be drawn from any of those three. So the, the other three groups that I've, I've already spoken about. Now, given all of this, I think the main things that need to be taken into account with patient partnerships. So if you're getting any of those patients involved in any part of, you know, let's say this survey project we've been talking about, the patient partnerships um, have to be fair. They've got to be transparent. They've got to be relevant. They've they need to have value to them. And also, and I know this sounds really um, obvious, but you also need to be considerate to the patient's needs. And I know that we've spoken about things like time commitment, logistics, training, that kind of thing. That's where consideration comes into play. So it's about taking that patient focus and that patient-centric approach to a deeper level. It's not about just going out and asking people, it's about how are we asking them? Is that patient focused? Is that patient friendly? Um, and I think we're at a point now within the industry where we can be doing this because we've gone beyond patient centricity, just meaning let's go out and ask a few patients. I really love the idea of narrowing down to the right segment of your patient population, truly understanding the needs and concerns of the types of patients who might be participating in your studies to ask them, you know, what will it take? What do you need? What are the types of technologies or how can we make the technology accommodate you? How are you seeing the broader use of technology across our lives impacting the expectation of how technology would be incorporated into clinical trials? I think the short answer to this is that it is an expectation. We are all using technology increasingly um, in our daily lives. It's not something that we can really get away from. And I think there's the expectation there that if we're going to be using technology, for example, to order your online shopping or to track your fitness, then the healthcare ecosystem also needs to be embracing technology and all of the options and the possibilities that it can bring. Um, so I think that particularly with COVID-19, um, it's really resulted in the greater use of technology across the board, but also in healthcare. And that's really shown to patients that technology can be used and it can be rolled out rapidly and that it's a feasible option that can make things like participating in a clinical trial, their healthcare management, um, having specialist um, attention from healthcare teams, it can make it much easier. You know, why would someone take a day off work, arrange childcare, and for someone to potentially accompany them to travel 100 miles to a clinical trial site when technology could potentially allow them to do certain things remotely. You know, it just, it, I think it's providing so many options. I also think it's made patient advocates much more aware that patient partnerships can also be made easier with technology. And actually there's no excuse for industry not to be using technology to bring in a more diverse set of voices of people who traditionally might not have been able to engage. 
What I would say, though, is that we have to remember that technology isn't the holy grail. It's not the magic solution for everyone. And what we need to make sure is that we don't fall into the trap of creating haves and have-nots purely due to how comfortable someone is using technology or how easily they might have access to it as well. The idea that there is a divide in technology or the use of technology in our patient communities, completely understand that. Uh, We so often see already underserved communities either lacking access to the technology or being less familiar with technology, that it seems to exacerbate that divide. It seems to uh, make it harder to bring those underserved patients into the, the patient populations that are desired for clinical studies. Any advice you would give to CROs or sponsors on how do you continue to address the needs of underserved communities? And specifically, how can technology help with those communities? So I think firstly, technology, like I said, it provides options. I think patients have had the opportunity to benefit from technology, but as we've just said, um, there is this risk of us creating this digital divide um, amongst patients where potentially their experiences and outcomes could be impacted by their ability to access and use technology. So for me personally, technology could open up access to clinical trials. I've turned down trials in the past because of the time and travel involved for site visits. But for someone like my mum, who isn't technologically savvy, there is a danger of her being excluded. Um, In fact, I've seen it just by her GP surgery, moving to a fully online booking system that she's not able to use. And at times she's actively avoided making an appointment and instead waited to see if something gets better because trying to book an appointment was causing her so much anxiety and essentially took away her independence to access healthcare herself because she had to rely on myself or my sister to do it for her. Um, So we need to remember that technology isn't going to be suitable for everyone. Um, We also need to remember that technology has the potential to increase patients' ability to self-manage and self-monitor. But again, this needs to be accompanied with them having the confidence and knowledge to be able to do so. And they need to be continued to be supported in using the technology because, you know, it has the ability to be able to provide us with much richer data in a much easier manner than perhaps had previously been the case. So I would say in terms of reaching and engaging those underserved communities, whether it's communities who may not have as wide access to digital technology, whether we're talking about underserved communities in terms of race and ethnicity or in terms of age or disability, firstly, don't assume Don't be afraid and consider that you might have to step outside of your traditional ways of thinking. Partnerships here are crucial. But again, we might have to think outside the box. So companies will often go straight to a patient organisation to reach an underserved community. But many of these organisations have a similar problem reaching 
these communities. So, you know, how how helpful is it actually going to be going to them to ask how do we reach these underserved communities? What I feel we really need to be doing is talking to people from the communities themselves, asking them what are the best ways to reach people within them? You know, make sure the information is targeted, it's relevant, it's appropriate. And how do you do that? You get patients from those communities involved in developing the information. So connect with patient advocates from the underserved communities work with them, you know, often they'll have communities of trusted followers who are like them in inverted commas and who they can reach out to in order to get wider engagement. Approach them via social media if necessary. You know, all of this is possible. And and think about diversity and inclusion right from the very start, not when, for example, you have recruitment problems and then need to find a solution, make sure that it doesn't become a problem in the first place. I really appreciate the advice of going to social media, finding influencers or advocates within certain groups that you're interested in engaging, and then creating a connection and relationship with that influencer or advocate and having them reach out, having them bring in the, the rest of their community. Are there other outreach strategies that sponsors or CROs should be using beyond social media to help enhance their recruitment, enhance the uh, diversity within the patient populations they're recruiting? So this is a really good question because one thing that I really advocate for is sharing a best practice, is sharing those examples where things have worked. Um, So in terms of engaging with underserved communities in particular, the best strategies that I've seen have been where companies have been willing to set up advisory councils. And these councils are permanent. They provide a backbone of strategic advice on how to get communities involved, how to get patient engagement further embedded into the company's activities. Um, It's an an idea that I've also seen work really well, just like I said, just generally for embedding this patient-focused strategy and culture. And I think that's really important. It's about embedding a patient-focused culture into an organization. Because when you have a council like this, it reminds everyone that the the patients are there to be consulted on an ongoing basis, not just for one-offs to tick a box. You know, nobody likes tokenism and it really doesn't work. Um, I would also say we also need to go to where the patients are, not where you want them to be. So how many patients actually know where to look for clinical trial information? I'd say very few. Most rely on their physician to tell them or their peers on social media. So I've seen very, um, very engaging and very effective um, projects where these channels have been used in a way that has meant that, yes, recruitment is better. Yes, their patient focus, the patient focus strategies are better because the channels through which patients are already going to these places, those are being utilized in much better ways. 
And then in terms of generally good patient engagement strategies, the best patient partnerships I've had have been the ones where, and again, I know it sounds really obvious, I've been treated well. So contracts have been easy to read. They've been easy to understand. They're not the length of a novel. There's been flexibility in scheduling to account for, you know, my family, job and other commitments, as well as also my health conditions. You know, I've been properly valued for my time and expertise. I've had an equal seat at the table along with other stakeholders. And I'd say, above all, the interaction has been human. So I'll give you a quick example. I was attending a meeting for a patient advisory council that I'm part of for a company. Um, It's a long-term project. I've been on this um, council for quite a while now. And a couple of things stood out on the day of that very first meeting. So it was the first time I was going to a meeting for this patient advisory council. So firstly, no assumptions were made. So there was no assumption that just because I lived relatively close to the hotel where the meeting was being held, that I wouldn't need overnight accommodation. Now, in that instance, I actually didn't need it, but it was nice to have been given the option and that the company didn't just assume, oh, well, Trishna lives really close by. She's not going to need overnight accommodation, Um, especially because often I've had to literally fight for and justify why I'm unable to manage doing something in one day. And then secondly, I'd left home really early that day. And the first thing I was asked when I arrived was, did you have time to have breakfast this morning? No? Well, let's buy you breakfast. Even though it would mean that the company was paying for a separate breakfast at the hotel because that particular meal wasn't included in the meeting scope. You know, there were no quibbles about how are we going to expense this? Is this allowed? No, it was we have an attendee who hasn't had time to eat because she had an early start. We need to do something about that. And that's making the collaboration is making the engagement more human, more empathetic, more considerate. And then finally, um, this particular organization also has a top-down approach to their patient engagement. So during that meeting, we were joined by the chief executive of the company, Now, we're talking about a company that has facilities in over 50 countries. I think they have around 19,000 employees and their annual turnover is like billions of dollars. So we're not talking about a small company here. This is one of the, the, the big major players. And the CEO participated in this meeting, not as an observer, but as a participant. You know, similarly, we've been joined by and had interactions with other members of the executive leadership team. I'll be honest, if they hadn't introduced themselves, I would never have guessed because they were fully participating in the meeting on an equal level and with an equal seat to all the rest of us. I've seen it really work and patient-centered needs and strategies have become an embedded part of the culture of that company. Um, And so, as I said, this can really work. I think if you embed this culture throughout the company, regardless of function areas or regardless of grade and what level you are in the company, 
I think it gets everyone thinking about how do we make this work for the patients? How can we work with them better? And the patients want to be involved. They want to work with companies like that because in turn, they feel valued. The engagement is more human. And, you know, they feel like they're providing something which is of value and which is really appreciated. You're definitely describing those companies who really get it. They truly understand that they have to put the patient first and that they need to design their culture, their processes, everything around the needs of patients. Uh, When you described your... Uh, your experience on this advisory board, it um, immediately made me think, oh, they're treating Krishna the way you would treat one of your top employees, making sure that all of your considerations are accounted for. And I I think that's what I'm hearing from you, that the the people who are going to be most successful are the ones who think about the patient day in and day out at all levels of the organization. Is that correct? Yes. No, that's absolutely perfect. It's Yeah, it's absolutely correct. Because at the end of the day, as patients, we're dealing with a lot of things. And companies have to remember that if an engagement or collaboration doesn't fit in with our lives, it causes us stress, it causes us anxiety, we don't feel appreciated, we don't feel valued. Why are we then going to add to the extra pressure and stress when we're already dealing with so much? It's a very personal thing, sharing your healthcare journey. It can be very difficult for a lot of people. Often you're talking about things which have you know, really affected every aspect of your life. And so if you're helping companies to do better in order to, you know, provide more patient-centered solutions, um, become a more patient-focused company, I think that needs to be understood. And the only way to understand that is if every single person in that company realizes the importance of the patient voice and realizes that those interactions need to be human. They're not business transactions because, like I said, these are very personal journeys that patients are often sharing. So we need to make sure that they feel comfortable and they want to work with companies again. Um, And like I said, the way to do that is by humanizing the interactions, making people feel appreciated and valued. If employees see that happening from the top down, I think it does become much more embedded. And also, it becomes much easier to get projects approved, to, you know, to get budget approved, because everybody understands. I have worked with companies where there's been pockets of what I call patient champions, but often they come against stumbling blocks when they're trying to get, for example, secure budget for a patient-focused project because other people within the company don't understand the importance of the patient voice or something as simple as, for example, you know, reimbursement for expenses or, you know, payment periods. You know, 
people need to understand that a patient may not be able to afford to wait for 60 days to get a train ticket reimbursed. So to get expenses improved, for instance, for a patient, you need to have understanding by the people who are approving those expenses. Why is it that this particular person needs to potentially come outside of the general practices or the general policies um, that they may have for other people within the company or with other you know, suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that's really what it comes down to. It comes down to understanding, having that you know, understanding go throughout the company and having that flexibility of approach so that these projects can be successful, they can be effective, and they can get the best possible best possible outcomes for, for everyone. It also strikes me that the more a company understands the needs, the concerns, the worries of the patient advocates, of the people sitting on their advisory council, the deeper their understanding of the actual patient population. Would that yes. be correct? Yes, no, it, it is correct, especially because many of the patient advocates who are getting involved currently within industry, they're very experienced and they have a deep knowledge of their patient communities. So if you're, for example, setting up an advisory board, it may be that you have, you know, I don't know, let's say 10 people on that advisory board what you're often getting is not just their own personal experiences, but also the experiences of the wider patient community. And understanding the patient community is key to improving patient focus throughout the medicines development life cycle and the healthcare ecosystem. Uh, because we, you know, we have to remember that patient communities, you know, when you delve down to the individual level, no two patients are going to be the same. What you need is a general overview as well of what are the general issues that are affecting the patient community? What are their general experiences? So that, like I said, we can make things much more patient focused. Absolutely. So we've seen so much change in the last 18 months. We've seen greater technology adoption. We've seen a greater appreciation for patient voice, a greater appreciation for diversity within clinical trials. What do you think is going to be sustainable over the next five to 10 years in, in all that has changed across the last 18 months? I think, and this might be very optimistic, I actually think that all of the positive changes that have happened in the past 18 months are sustainable. I think there needs to be willingness, there needs to be flexibility, and there needs to be the idea that it's not about one size fits all, it's about having options available. When you have the options available, you're going to be able to reach a more diverse set of patient voices. You're going to be able to have people using the technology that suits them. You're going to have clinical trials that are more fit for purpose and that are more patient friendly. I think 
Willingness is, I mean, it goes a long way. We've seen during COVID-19 what is possible and what can be achieved. If somebody had said, you know, three years ago, before COVID-19 was even on the radar, that we would be using telemedicine, for example, within everyday clinical care, the vast majority of people, you know, healthcare systems, you know, globally, people probably wouldn't have believed us because they were, you know, we've been trying for years to, you know, to have telemedicine as an everyday embedded part of the system. Um, but it's been rolled out and it's possible. Even, you know, the fact that the COVID-19 clinical trials, whether that's to do with, um, you know, symptomatic drugs, whether it's to do with the vaccines, things can move very quickly if you have the willingness you have the and you have the resources. Um, made available. So I think it is all sustainable. We just need to, I think everyone have a very optimistic view. I'm, I'm an optimist, so I'm going to be very optimistic about this. Um, but we need to have the willingness there. And I don't think we should just be, you know, when things start to, for example, return to some kind of normality, or just go back to the way things were done because that's what we know and that we're comfortable with. I think we've broken down a lot of barriers and we've made a huge amount of progress. We need to continue with that. And as I said, I think options are going to be the key for moving forward so that we're able to serve all patients in the way that suits them. Trisha, I love love your optimism and your vision. Uh, here, here at Nedria, we couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, we think that flexibility, choice, the ability to tailor different parts of your technology to various segments within your patient population of a clinical study is incredibly important. The idea that each individual has individual needs and therefore, having the flexibility to cater to those needs, that's the key to success. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Trishna. We really appreciate you participating on our podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. The pleasure's been all mine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Trial Talks. To delve deeper into the insights and information you heard today, visit us at trialtalks.com. 